Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. What is biohacking, and how does biotechnology play into that? Well, biohacking is kind of a funny term and encompasses a lot of different disciplines and ideas. But there are some folks who actually believe that it's possible to take a DIY approach to tweaking your DNA in the interest of healthier living. There's a lot of discussion around this and certainly a lot of ethical considerations. But what about uh, using biotechnology and biohacking as a way to educate the public or maybe even win favor with folks like anti-vaxxers? There's a good opportunity that maybe by showing them how molecular biology works, we can actually change some hearts and minds, including in the deeply entrenched anti-vaccine, anti-GMO worlds. Our guest today has really tried to do just that. And maybe a lot of people will disagree what he's, with what he's done, but you can't help but think he's doing something that's defining a different cutting edge. So our guest today is David Ishi. Uh, he's a biohacker, <laughs> dog breeder, and mad scientist. So how mad are you, David? Uh, not that mad. I, I like to think I, I kind of keep it reined in. So is it mad like crazy mad or is it mad like angry mad? Oh, definitely not angry mad. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a definitely an, an optimistic and happy guy. Okay, so we'll cover all these topics uh, today. But when we're talking about, um, let's just start out with the idea of biohacker. What's a biohacker? <laughs> well, it depends on who you ask. But um, there's kind of two main camps to biohacking. There's a sort of a, if you Google biohacking, a lot of what will come up will be a lot of like people doing like a lot of exercising and taking vitamins. Um, but then there's sort of an alternate version of biohacking where people are doing sort of do-it-yourself biotech stuff. So genetic engineering at home, um, you know, doing all the things that you might do in a lab, but in your own home lab. Uh, and that's really the more the biohacking that I fall into. Yeah, but, you know, let me be devil's advocate for a second. In all the discussion of lab leaks and things, isn't a lab leak really second place evil to escaped from the garage of an evil guy named Dan? I mean, <laughs> something like that. Sure, but leaking out of Dan's garage won't be like a, a, a novel virus. That That's a lot harder work than most people are working on. So the thing leaking out of Dan's garage is going to be like some GFP bacteria kind of thing. Yeah, well, I guess, I guess the perception is the thing that I worry about. Because if people think that you can do genetic engineering at home and that you can create genetically engineered plants or microbes, does it kind of give people or does it really kind of give biotechnology a little bit of a bad perception that maybe it's a little bit too accessible and cavalier? I think it's kind of the other way around, really. Um, my, my experience with the average person has been more that there's less of a fear that um, that biotech is, is too uh, or is, is insufficiently restrained and more of a fear that it's restrained by the wrong people. So most of the people who are against biotech are like, it's big corporations and the government and these sorts of things that, that just want control and they're using this power to monopolize more power. 
And I think the idea of democratizing that power appeals to a lot of people. And is that really what's happened when we look at the new gene editing techniques? Does it seem like that gives people a little more power to be able to, you know, democratize this, to be able to play with plants at home? Uh, in terms of what people can do, yeah. I mean, people are doing at home now stuff that was cutting edge, Nobel Prize winning science just a few years ago. Uh, so biohackers are making progress at the heels of academics, but faster than academics because obviously we have a we can just read your papers and do what you do. <laughs> well, you know, being uh, being in the academic sphere really is kind of uh, bordered by a couple of issues. Like you can't do a lot of things basically because of the constraints of dollars and cents it takes to do it. So oh. how are people who are doing this at home able to fund doing laboratory research, which I guess it can be a little inexpensive, but how does it get done uh, in a garage? So there's a bunch of different ways. Um, for one, a lot of cost cutting is possible. That's, that's something I really specialized in is trying to find less expensive ways to do things. Um, really kind of all my work can be put under that umbrella um, because most things don't have to be nearly as expensive as they are. Uh, obviously things from like the early 90s and the 80s, if you want to do some PCR and, and subclone some stuff, it's super cheap. Um, but in terms of things that are more advanced, they don't have to be as expensive as they are. Uh, a lot of things are just overpriced. Uh, a lot of the chemicals don't have to be as expensive as they are. A lot of the reagents don't have to be as expensive as they are. A lot of the equipment can be sourced for a lot less expensively than it is. So a lot of it is if you reduce the price of everything as much as you can, it gets surprisingly affordable. Other than that, people end up having to just find ways to earn money. Like I, for example, have a Patreon, uh, but also I've done contract research to pay for things. Um, I've done just all sorts of work using those skills to help me pay to do the work that I want to do. Yeah, that, and it really is an interesting thing how the price of some of the associated required stuff has come down. I ordered some primers last week for the first time in a while. And I was surprised that you get a, a you know, you, you can just to those who haven't done this, you can go onto a website at a company and punch in a synthetic DNA sequence that you'd like to order. And they charge you per base or per oligonucleotide. And tomorrow an envelope shows up with the stuff in there and it's three bucks. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing how cheap custom DNA synthesis is. And then even when you start talking about, say, plasmid level or gene level synthesis, we're still talking about hundreds, whereas it used to be thousands, unless it's even cheaper. I don't know. I don't even know. Yeah, it's it's it depends on the length, obviously. Um, bigger plasmids can be, but especially if you're willing to do a little subcloning of your own, you can order, if you can get creative with modifying plasmids, yeah, you can do this stuff for really inexpensive. And some places like Twist will give you DNA for seven cents a base pair, uh, but it takes more work. And, uh, you know, like you said, oligos are nothing. So you can actually order long oligos and assemble them yourself. Yeah, it's, it's been it's really uh, changed a lot of the landscape with respect to doing big projects like, uh, you know, genomics level work with especially with, uh, you know, libraries and subtractive libraries, things where you're trying to uh, find matches for sequences. We've done a lot of really big stuff that's only been possible because of the relatively low cost. But when we're talking about things that are necessary in the laboratory, like, you know, thermal cycler or uh you know electrophoresis electrophoresis equipment this stuff used to cost an arm and a leg and so where does an average person who wants to do this at home find this stuff is it like an ebay thing or do you, can you make it or what, how do you do it 
so I made my electrophoresis equipment out of some Tupperware and aluminum foil uh, and 9 volt batteries originally. Uh, and I did gel electrophoresis for probably two years that way. Um, I just, you know, linked the batteries up to get it to about 100 volts and it worked fine. Um, I still have that one in my lab, but I tend to use the ones that work now. Uh, but yeah, I mean, a gel electrophoresis setup, you can get, if you want a mini one, you can get them for relatively inexpensive, like less than $100. Uh, or you can make your own for, you know, scrap. Um, and then like shakers and incubators and all that stuff, uh, they're easy, easily made. Um, but things like uh, PCR machines, like thermocyclers, you can find used ones on eBay all day long. The biggest issue is a lot of them are various degrees of broken, and so your ability to repair things makes a big difference. Yeah, there used to be a, um, a, a copy of Make Magazine or Maker Magazine that had uh, how to make a thermal cycler using Peltier coolers that you could buy really cheap. And then you would use that with a 3D printing plan that you could uh, download and essentially make a thermal cycler, uh, you know, run three or four tubes at a time. But it, it's really cool that this kind of thing is accessible. So who are the people who are mostly doing this? Is it mostly just enthusiasts or are there people who are actually doing this at home and uh, developing products that they're commercially making available or what's going on there? I don't know if anybody has actually made the jump from uh, at home work to commercialization yet, because, I mean, that, that stuff takes a while, even when you have the resources of a company. Um, but most people are somewhere in between they're either just enthusiasts and they just adore the process and the idea behind it and the science or they um are doing a lot of free work a lot of people do a lot of free work where they're just trying to do stuff to make things better for the community they like find easier and cheaper ways to do this that and the other uh, and a lot of it is also um you know just just people who have an idea for building a company and they're going to sort of bootstrap it all together but it's a long slow process are most people working on plants, bacteria, fungi? Like what's the real organism or if in your case, fish or something? What are people really uh, interested in, in terms of uh, hacking biology? Oh, it's everything. I mean, it's, it's, I've, I've, I know people working on bacteria stuff for like microbiome things. I know people working on fungus. I know people working on uh, plants, animals, people working on human things. I mean, basically everything that's available. And you say you know people. Is it like a club that gets together and everybody kind of brings a petri dish, or what? Uh, you know, what, what's the uh, communication? Yeah, I mean, but is it like? Are there groups online that compare notes, or people who are saying, "Look what I did," or like, or is this kind of? Uh, I mean, obviously not kept too quiet, right? No, no, um, no. There's like a big Facebook group, Biohacking and Genetic Design Network, where a lot of people are. But also, there's conferences. So there's like Biohack the Planet uh, every year. And there's conferences like at DEF CON, there's a, um, there's a biohacking village where lots of people get together. And honestly, sometimes at DEF CON, a lot of people who get together with, you know, little falcon tubes and, and, and Petri dishes and exchange organisms. I mean, <laughs> I mean, it, it, to me, it's so weird because where I come from, everything is so regulated. You know, we're in the, uh, in the, in the laboratory that I'm that I, you know, my lab, if, if you have a, we work on uh, transgenic and non-transgenic organisms. We have lettuce that we work with just to look at growth patterns on our funny color lights. And if we uh, go to throw out a lettuce plant when we're done measuring it, uh, we know we don't eat it. We're, we're going to toss it. 
uh, toss salad. We're going to toss this thing and we have to make sure it's autoclaved, even though it never was transgenic because anything coming out of my lab is considered transgenic. Right. And so I, I live in this like highly regulated uh, environment where I have to turn in, you know, every time we, we make a new plasmid, the university needs to have the map of that plasmid on file. I mean, it's crazy. And so to think that that there's this completely other universe where all this stuff is out the window uh, is really pretty cool. Yeah. And in fact, a lot of the people that I know are either actively academics or ex-academics uh, who got tired of dealing with the regulations uh, and were like, I'm just going to build my own lab and I'll do my own side projects at home and not deal with any of that. But, but isn't there some oversight somewhere on recombinant DNA stuff totally. where... You know, I don't know who would do it, uh, you know, but is, isn't there some sort of oversight from USDA or EPA or someplace that uh, has some guidelines that totally. it, there is? Yeah, yeah. So uh, a few different places. First, uh, the first sort of watchdog group I ever had call me was the uh, International Gene Synthesis Consortium. Um, and they just called me because I had ordered some gene synthesis and um, they were like, who are you? What are you into? Why are you doing it? <laughs> I was honest on my application. I was like dog breeder because <laughs> they're asking various questions in the in the little form you fill out. And so I tell them and they call me and I explain what I'm doing and how I'm doing it. And they're like, OK, and they're in they're an international consortium between various gene synthesis companies that just watch to make sure nobody's using gene synthesis for, you know, untoward reasons. Um, I've been called by the FBI when they were like, hey, we want to talk about some of these organisms you purchased. Um, and, uh, I've had long conversations with the FDA, uh, with some of the stuff I want to do because I was doing animal stuff and they kind of regulate that. Although some of that's moved to the USDA recently, but that's pretty recent. This was back in like 2017, 16. And, you know, so there's, there's a lot like you can't, like I could make a transgenic mouse, for example, and nobody would care. But if I made a transgenic mouse and it left my property, it would be out of biocontainment. And now I've got to deal with the EPA possibly or uh, the FDA if I started trying to sell these. Although mice might be exempted. But say I made a genetically modified dog. The FDA wants me to get them uh, uh, FDA approved as a new veterinary drug. The modification itself is a veterinary drug before they're allowed to sort of enter the marketplace. Yeah, there's a. I was at a meeting last December on potential biotech threats, and I was uh, had a great conversation with a guy named Kevin Esfeld, Dr. Kevin Esfeld. Mm -hmm. He actually was on. You know who he is, probably. Yeah, he yeah. was on uh, the podcast earlier this year, and he was talking about how uh, companies actually do monitor who orders what because it's so easy to synthesize something like a coronavirus or whatever you could actually anybody with a dna synthesizer could potentially put together the pieces of the smallpox virus and so this yeah. is where these uh, organizations actually do monitor to some degree who's ordering what and if it flags something that's potentially risky so who else is monitoring this stuff uh I mean, other than the, uh, obviously, other governments also. So the U.S. government, I know, monitors uh, <laughs> biohackers. Like the FBI even had a, 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 an agent uh, assigned for years to sort of see what's up with these biohackers. Um, and he actually became a really big proponent of biohacking. And they eventually were like, biohackers aren't enough of a threat to worry about. Let's stop worrying about the biohackers. But um, 
the 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 other governments of the world also do, especially in Europe, because Europe's pretty paranoid about GMOs. So, like the German government, for example, is uh, they've raided biohackers' houses and taken their lab equipment and done all kinds of crazy stuff. Yeah, so we're talking to biohacker, dog breeder, and mad scientist <laughs> David Aishi, and I. Uh, we're talking about biohacking and dog breeding and mad science. Uh, this is Clabber's Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Calabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Calabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Collabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P. And now we're back on Collabra's Talking Biotech podcast. We're speaking with David Ishi. He's a biohacker, dog breeder, and mad scientist in that order. We're talking about what is biohacking and who's doing it and is it allowable or is there a threat associated with it? And is it really something that maybe we could use to stimulate public understanding of science, especially biotechnology? And is it something we could use to uh, potentially stimulate the brains of the folks who will be tomorrow's uh, biohackers and uh, biologists? So before the break, we talked about what it is and what are some of the potential threats and what are the weird edges of it. But uh, you're also involved with research and development for uh, Odin, who uh, is a company that creates these kits that anybody can buy and do a little genetic engineering at home. So could you tell me a little bit about who they are and what that mission is? Yeah, sure. So the Odin is uh, the Open Discovery Institute. Uh, it's, a, it's a company that sells educational kits and supplies. Uh, and our target is mostly biohackers and other people who are interested in doing genetic engineering for themselves without paying really high prices. Um, I first interacted with the Odin shortly after it uh, became a thing, um, before I worked here, uh, because I was a biohacker and I started buying my supplies here. Um, so like, how do you get, where, where's the best price on things like LB or pipettes and things like that? So I eventually started getting supplies here, established a good relationship with the people that work here, especially Joe, the, the founder, and, um, if now, years later, I work here, um, and I'm head of R&D, and I get to make cool things. But the fun part is uh, a lot of our customers are schools, too. So there's lots of colleges uh, that, that buy our kits and use them as part of their curriculum every year. Um, there's high schools that do it, and even middle schools that do it. So there are middle schoolers out there doing CRISPR using these kits, uh, getting exposure to genetic engineering as a not scary thing that happens in a faraway lab behind closed doors, but something you can really experience with your own hands, like right here, right in front of you personally. And then when someone comes along and tells you it's a terrible, scary thing that causes uncontrollable mutants and giant wolves that fly, you can say, uh, no, this is what it is. I've done it myself. Yeah. So when you're talking about uh, students who are doing uh, gene editing are doing site-directed uh, gene editing, uh, which sometimes we refer to as CRISPR if we're using those techniques. They're able to do this in the laboratory or they're able to do this like in a classroom? And what kind of organisms are they doing this to and what genes are they editing? So we've got a bunch of different kits. Um, uh, most of them, like 
for some of the simplest kits, like they have like a what we call the jellyfish kit, but basically you put a jellyfish gene, the GFP gene in bacteria, and the bac it's E. coli. It's a safe lab strain of E. coli, so it's not pathogenic or anything. And it just makes them green and fluorescent. So it's kind of a fun thing to look at, and it's a simple little protocol. Um, and it goes all the way up to, uh, we have plants, we have uh, 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 even human cells. So we have a class that's got an online class component and it's got um, uh, obviously a physical component where you get HEK cells, you get flasks, you get media, you get the whole thing and you grow HEK cells uh, in culture uh, and then you genetically modify them uh, so that they express uh, beta-lactamase, which is just a gene that, that converts one thing into another. Uh, and then you add Xgal, which is just a chemical, and it breaks that down if they've been successfully genetically modified. So at the end, you have a little 12-volt plate with cells growing on it, and if you've successfully genetically modified the human cells, the well will turn blue, and if you haven't, it'll stay sort of a pinky color from the media. So we have, and then we have kits where you can modify plants. So you can get this, get a plant, like this is one of the first ones that I really worked on when I started here, uh, was building a kit for plant genetic engineering because we didn't have one. And the cool thing about it is uh, there's this reporter uh, that a friend of mine, uh, uh, Sebastian Kosioba, um, uh, or Kochoba, excuse me, um, uh, has been working with for years called Ruby. And what it does is uh, it basically makes uh, three enzymes that themselves make a chemical called betalane, which is the stuff that turns beets red. And so if you put those genes... Uh, into a different plant, it'll also turn red, as long as it's got the correct everything. And so using agrobacterium, which up till recently was not legal to move between states in the United States without USDA permission, uh, but they changed the rules in 2020. So in 2021, I started working on uh, this new kit. And what you can do is um, it's preloaded. The agrobacterium have the genes already in them. So what you do is culture the bacteria, uh, uh, virilize them, so you basically just sort of put them in a special uh, liquid, and then uh, you can do agroinfiltration in the leaves of the tobacco plant that comes with the kit, uh, or you can use your own plant, and it'll modify the leaves in the regions that you uh, uh, add the bacteria, and uh, you can, and after a few days, it'll start to express the red color, and you'll change the color of the leaves by modifying their genes, and the plant lives and continues, and you can grow it, and you can design it, you can make whole leaves red, or patterns or write your name in it whatever you want yeah pretty cool and and sebastian you mentioned him he uh, does a lot of neat stuff i follow him on facebook and he does a lot of cool work with uh, engineering uh reporters so whether you know yeah. different fluorescent reporters but this one i didn't know about this one was uh, was this actually his doing or is this something that he just adapted from other work uh it was from the university of california um he did make a modification to it by adding the rfp gene uh, but we went, uh, I contacted him and I was like, hey, you know, we want to do this. And he told me it wasn't his plasmid, but he also showed me a lot of the ropes about hints and tips for things that he um, he does to, because he was also, he's also working in plants in sort of an at-home environment, at least to begin with. So that, uh, he really helped me out early on in getting the kit simplified, because the main thing is you need to simplify a whole kit, including a plant, into a box where people can do genetic engineering on plants. And so... I took about six months to simplify, but Sebastian gave me a big um, head start. And uh, but we contacted University of California, uh, signed a contract with them, that allowed us to distribute them, and we um, uh, paid them a, a fee 
uh, for like royalties, I guess. But yeah, it's it's University of California uh, product basically. Yeah, it looks pretty good on the website. So if, if people were interested in looking at the kits and kind of seeing what was available for either, you know, the DIY genetic engineering or CRISPR stuff, where would they find it online? Uh, just go to theodin.com, spelled like O-D-I-N, so theodin.com, or it's the-odin.com. Um, but you can, if you just look up DIY plant genetic engineering, it'll also come up. Um, there's not really anywhere else to get it, so... Yeah, I guess that's still, you know, going back to the original topic, do you give any guidance as to containment of these things or you know, just because if this kind of, uh, I know tobacco, you know, if it, if it gets out, what happens, you know, who knows, nothing. But there's a lot of things you could genetically engineer that at least in the somatic state would be no, no big risk. But you can imagine that some of this stuff could eventually make its way into a, into a germline. And eventually, you know, break containment. And now you've got, uh, you know, beet red, whatever <laughs> uh, in your neighborhood. Yeah, it's it's not impossible, uh, but I don't think it would be a significant issue because it doesn't really give them a. Well, I mean, obviously you can't say for sure, but I can't imagine a scenario where it gives them a significant uh, evolutionary advantage to have beta lane. Um, but um, we 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 give some guidelines, but for the most part, uh, because it's just somatic cells eventually the plant's just gonna those leaves are just gonna get old and fall off one day and that'll just kind of be that uh i think it would be a very unlikely scenario for anything to actually like escape um but you know we're, we're following usda guidelines now so if it does turn into a problem they may change the rules and then we'll have to do something different yeah i guess it, it is kind of important to consider because i know usda aphis and uh epa guidelines they are always, especially USDA APHIS, one of the big criteria is, is can this thing outcross with natural populations? And if it does, you know, does it potentially confer uh, some sort of selection advantage? But with something like color in a fruit or in a plant that you'd be engineering for food, um, it, you can imagine color could have a real significant advantage. And sure. so how, how much of a problem is unregulated DIY food showing up at a farmer's market. You know, is that something that is realistic? Um, I think one day, uh, and there will be probably regulations to address that. Uh, but currently, uh, that would be regulated by the FDA, I'm sure, uh, because even at a farmer's market, that's considered in commerce. So that would be a novel a GMO that would need to be FDA approved. Uh, Someone could probably do it under the radar, but honestly, I don't think it's significantly different than just someone crossbreeding or doing any other kind of uh, genetic change or even just randomly picking up a mutant plant. Um, and there's also things like radio breeding, which obviously people don't do as much as they used to, where you just bombard seeds with radiation and pick out weird mutants. Uh, but those are very underregulated um, and much less controlled. So I can't imagine that it would be significantly different than that. Yeah, I, I get it. And this was so funny is, you know, for me, I'm I'm the guy who usually is saying, pull out all the stops, uh, you know, let's go wild, do everything you can, get these things in people's hands. You know, uh, nothing's going to go wrong. And that's usually me. But when I start getting into hearing about, well, this stuff is available at a relatively approachable cost, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, then you start thinking, well, is this the kind of thing that I... 
like you know, I, I don't, I, I don't trust my neighbors with a six pack of beer and and <laughs> you know and 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 their lawnmower, you know, and then now <laughs> we're going to be giving them uh, biohacking. Uh, so it just is one of these things that, and I and I'm trying to understand this because it's against every bit of my fiber and being to be a little skeeved out by this. Yeah. And it, the, what's the general reaction to, um, to this from organizations like USDA or EPA? Has there been any formal ruling or do they just kind of say, we're going to just not look at it and not worry about it until it becomes a problem? I think probably a bit of both. So I think most of the time, uh, we're expected to follow all the same rules that anybody else is, right? Uh, so, I mean, the rules apply to everybody, whether you're an institution or a thing, except for, obviously, if you take certain funding from the government, there's additional rules and, you know, things like that. But um, we have to follow the same rules as, like, corporations or anybody because the rules don't apply specifically to companies. They apply to, you know, anybody who's doing these things. Um, so the prospect that somebody could break the rules is always there. Uh but I think the damage risk is so low that it's it's unrealistic. Um, I think for the most part, people are afraid of things um, simply because it's an unknown and not necessarily because there's a good case that bad things will happen. Well, what's the coolest thing that you're working on right now? Oh, right now? Um, let's see. Uh, <laughs> well, there's a couple of things. Uh, that I'm working on. One of them uh, is I'm trying to work on a method for um, making uh, transgenic dogs, but making it easier. Uh, so uh, <laughs> there's a technique called sperm-mediated gene transfer that's kind of iffy. An Italian team apparently has done it a bunch of times, but whether that paper can really be trusted, who knows, because there's replication issues. Though it has been apparently replicated, um, but as you know, not all papers are legit. Um, so uh, the, uh, but the technique is basically take sperm, genetically modified sperm, do artificial insemination. If you can do that, um, you can create transgenic animals, but specifically for me, dogs, uh, in a much more approachable way, uh, because, uh, the typical techniques are obviously very invasive and expensive, but that would put it in a position where it's something that a dog breeder could do, because if, if you, or at least... A very advanced dog breeder could do and this is obviously the direction we have to go because dogs have a myriad of genetic diseases and there's no obvious solution in sight and i've been fighting with dog breeders i'm a dog breeder myself but i've been fighting with dog breeders for over a decade now about breeding practices and inbreeding and all these sorts of things and i honestly think it'll be easier to teach dog breeders to do CRISPR than it will to teach them that pure breeding is a bad idea because i've been <laughs> trying for so long and I think um, there's a lot of things that we could fix you know and there's a lot of things that for example um, Dalmatians the the whole population has hyperuricemia um, and so you have two options you breed out of the population and create sort of mutts according to most authorities on dogs uh, or you do some sort of genetic repair at least on enough individuals to, to start repairing the population and the, the mutation for hyperuricemia is a single point mutation. It's one letter. It's like a G that should have been a T. Uh, and it's three bases upstream of a PAM site. So it's begging to be CRISPR'd. And <laughs> it's just on the SLC2A9 gene sitting there. And it causes them significant health problems. 
and the entire breed is affected. Now, there was a geneticist back in, I don't know, 30-something years ago who uh, crossbred Dalmatians to pointers and then bred them back to pointers and back and back and back. It took 30 years for the uh, 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 American Kennel Club to acknowledge that these are, in fact, not mutts, they're Dalmatians because they searched the whole world looking for a single Dalmatian who could be used as a founder of a healthy uh, strain of Dalmatians, and they couldn't find one. So they had that breed out uh, to a healthy population, and it's going to take them 100 years to breed that gene into the rest of the population unless they just even further collapse the genetic diversity of the Dalmatians by only breeding those dogs. So if you could instead had a available and reasonable to use uh, construct that was stable and you could just do sperm mediated gene transfer and in the middle you sort of add your sort of plasmid and transfection reagents or whatever it turns out to be and then finish with artificial insemination test the puppies okay these two three puppies out of the litter maybe uh, have the mutation corrected then thousands of them could be born in one generation and you could eliminate the disease in a generation or two rather than in a hundred years And I have to think about this a little bit. So without going into the gory details of how you capture a sample, (laughs) how do you do sperm-mediated gene transfer? I mean, you have to have, it would seem like you'd have to have some sort of selectable marker or this would have to be at some extremely high frequency in order to guarantee that you would even get one puppy that would uh, successfully carry the transgene. Totally, totally. And and the, um, the Italian team did it in pigs. And with their results uh, and some other people's results, the results were fairly frequent. So it was like uh, 10% or something. Um, and I think as far as... Now, I've been able to modify the sperm, but I haven't been able to get uh, puppies from it. And it's not that I get no um, no modified puppies, but regular puppies, I just get no pregnancy. So something I'm doing is damaging the sperm. But the typical um, uh, protocol is just take the sperm, wash it to remove the seminal fluid. So you basically just centrifuge them down, pull off the liquid from the top, resuspend them in a different solution, salts and minerals mostly, and then do that a couple of times. Uh, and then the sperm is in this other solution. Uh, that's, And it really doesn't matter what that is. You can do it in just saline. Um, but then you just add plasmid and let them incubate together. And sperm will spontaneously bind to DNA. Uh, just in solution. It's a thing that they do on their own. Now, they don't express it because they're transcriptionally silent. So you can't select based on expression of anything. So it makes it really hard. But you can um, just drown them in DNA, basically, and they all have to run into some DNA. And for whatever reason, sperm are sticky to DNA once you remove the seminal fluid. And so if there's an, if any seminal fluid left, there's something that inhibits DNA from binding to, to, to sperm. But once you get rid of it by washing... Uh, it works fine. And I've done it with fluorescently labeled DNA. And you can see the, the patterns match the papers where the papers use radio labeled DNA um, to, to create sperm that's carrying this DNA. And then when it fertilizes, it delivers it. Uh, and you're waiting on things like random incorporation um, to get there. But if you use something like CRISPR, which I haven't tried CRISPR yet with this because I'm going to do one thing at a time. First, I'm going to do replication in the new species. And then uh, so just with GFP and then uh, work on adding CRISPR to do uh, something more specific. Um, but the idea would be um, you could just order like a kit and it would come with some tubes and plasmid and some solution and you just collect sperm, 
do the washes with a centrifuge and then go forward and uh, you know incubate for an hour and then do the thing. Um, whatever I'm doing in my current protocol, the pig protocol damages dog sperm in some way that makes them incapable of fertilizing. I think it's hyperactivating them because of the pH or the amount of calcium or magnesium, but blah, blah, blah. So um, I need to continue to modify the chemistry and everything to get it where the sperm are happy and healthy at the end. Huh. And, and so you could, so if you can do this with a dog, why can't you do it with humans? You probably can. I mean, <laughs> I am, it's going to happen at some point. Um, and honestly, I'm, I, I am aware of people who are working on making those sorts of things available uh, to people who have lots and lots of money and can go to other countries. So the idea of genetically modified humans is inevitable. Um, I mean, obviously, it's already happened once. Um, well, three times, I guess, technically. But, um, you know, there will be, unavoidably, uh, billionaires out there who will fly to wherever, uh, where the laws are different, and they'll get their children genetically modified, and they'll come home, and they just won't tell anybody. Or they will, and it won't, you know, there won't be any regulations about having genetic modifications, just about having done it, and you didn't do it in the U.S., so it'll be all right. And it's going to happen, and I don't think it's something we can... I don't think it's something we have the cultural or regulatory framework to deal with at the moment. And I don't think that's a biohacking problem. That's an everything problem. Yeah, there's plenty of other things that we can do to screw things up, as we've witnessed in the last few weeks. Um, that you know, humans can do some awful stuff. Uh, but but that's where always was a concern for me is you know how easy it would be to do something that would be involved in bioterrorism. Because it doesn't have to, like I mentioned earlier, you could put together a virus pretty easily, you know, whether it would be COVID-19 or whatever. But years ago, I even remember hearing, this is going back into the 70s and 80s, of uh, the Soviet laboratories engineering antibodies against, uh, against myelin and installing these into expression vectors like AAV and then uh, using these as a potential bioweapon that you could infect people with them and basically have their nervous systems destroyed. Yeah. And this would, you know, so these, these kinds of things are old ideas that have been floating around for a long time. And I, I'm afraid there is going to be a time when we really have to think about how we're going to regulate how recombinant DNA is happening. And it breaks my heart as somebody who's a big fan of the technology. I think, I think like any technology, it's got, it's got positive and negative uses. But I think if your root goal is to hurt people, genetic engineering is the hard way for sure. Because, I mean, you know as well as anybody that most genetic engineering projects that you try, especially without testing them the first time, just fail. Something's not right, especially if it's something really novel, like a gene therapy. Um, and so I imagine if you just cooked up something in your garage, it's either an exact duplicate of something that's naturally occurring, which means we have some experience with it and probably even vaccines, or it's, um, uh, or it's something novel that probably won't work. And so to really make it work, you really need test subjects. So I, I suspect the first real bioweapons will come from states and terrorist organizations, not biohackers, because if you're, a, if you're a rogue state like North Korea or something, you have a prison population that you could do all sorts of iterative experiments on where you infect somebody and see how well it spreads and modify and infect again and keep going. Um, but if you're just a biohacker, even if you're a crazy one, you don't have a prison population that you can use to, to refine your, your thing. And if you just throw out the first thing you cook out, it's probably just not going to work. Um, 
And I think the biggest thing is, um, you know, the, if you if your goal is to harm people, biotech is a terrible way. Like maybe you could make some giant pandemic, but odds are it's going to affect you as much as anybody. But if you, so, it's not a good weapon. Um, and if you're a person with a budget that's in the hundreds or thousands, gasoline and a match does a lot more damage. Um, you know, there are chemicals that are just as poison or more poison than anything. If you wanted to just poison the water supply, um, there are all sorts of things that can be done to harm people. I mean, it's relatively easy to get a, 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 a rifle and a bomb and go kill people if that's your goal, not doing years of genetic experiments to try and hopefully come up with something that maybe works. Um, so I think, but there are, but the things that require genetic engineering are generally good things or they're sort of neutral things. The things that you can't do, because it's so easy to destroy things and hurt people, that you don't need something as advanced or complicated as genetic engineering. It's like robotics. If you want it, you could create an army of killer robots to kill people, or you can just burn a building down. And doing all that robotics seems like a long way to go to get your you know, goal of harming people. Um, but if you want to build a robot that you know vacuums, you can't do that with a bomb. You can't do that with a fire. So, you know, I think most of the uses that are where it's the best case technology are good or neutral. Yeah, that's probably true. Maybe I'm reading a little bit too much into it. Well, as you are aware, there's a lot of people out there who really don't like the edges of biotechnology. They, they don't like genetic engineering in crops. They're a little uncomfortable with things like the COVID vaccine. They even get a little bit weird when you say that you can cure sickle cell disease with, you know, by, by using biotechnology. So how do, how do they generally respond to biohackers? I think uh, it's surprisingly positive. Um, for example, uh, when, when COVID first happened, uh, early 2020, um, you know, there was a ton of research that was being pushed out and obviously it had the world's attention. Um, so around m the middle of 2020, we had a group of biohackers, uh, uh, me, Daria and, and Joe, um, got together and we found a paper that was uh, where they had done a DNA based vaccine on um, uh, macaws and it worked. They did challenge trials. They had, I mean, these monkeys developed neutralizing antibodies and resisted the original strain of COVID-19. And we were like, this is really easy. It's just spike protein on a plasmid. Um, we could do this. Uh, so we decided to make our own vaccine. This was months before anything came out. Um, and we ordered the DNA uh, in a very large endotoxin-free prep, you know, and it was a large prep. This was uh, in the milligram range. Um, and uh, we did a series of classes on the internet um, on how one might make a vaccine because um, it was still unclear if vaccines were years away. This was early 2020. And um, so we, we did an online class where we live streamed every step. We uh, tested that we, we designed the plasmid, got the plasmid, put it in um, cell culture expressed spike protein tested you know using elizas and things like that tested for the expression of of spike protein um then we did uh, our own injections uh with these plasmids so we had you know temporary expression of the of the spike protein uh it made 
then we tested our blood before and after. We took samples all throughout. Uh, and we tested them with uh, pseudovirus neutralization assays, which is kind of a fancy ELISA to see if it'll bind to the receptor of COVID or, and, and block the receptor on the cell that, that um, an antibody should if it's going to uh, neutralize COVID from being able to infect cells. Uh, and we all three had antibody responses uh, that were you know, positive according to the assay uh, standards. And uh, so in early 2020, we all three vaccinated ourselves before the vaccines came out. Um, and we did it live and we did every step and we answered people's questions and we talked to people. And there were a ton of anti-vaxxers who were on there saying, I want your vaccine. You're the only vaccine I trust. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that it wasn't behind closed doors. Uh, we answered all their questions. Uh, we never, you know, we tried to be respectful of people's ignorances and, and things because obviously everybody has infinite ignorance. Um, nobody knows most things. And we, uh, we had a really surprisingly positive response. And obviously we weren't trying to sell it or, or do anything with it. So, you know, we were just trying to show you how one might be done. Um, but we really tried to uh, engage with people in a way that um, uh, I think made them more comfortable. I think, I think it was just the, the for radical transparency. Uh, and I think that's one thing biohacking can do good because there's no, um, there's no like IP to protect. There's no, I'm going to embarrass the company if, if I mess up on this experiment and have to do it again or anything like that. So I think it really helps, uh, for people to engage with the process on the most basic level, it seems less scary when you can just sort of watch it and understand each piece step by step. And so with people uh, who were anti-vax, they were much more positive with the vaccine. Um, they mostly, I think, don't trust authority rather than um, uh, biotech itself. I don't, it's not the technology most of them are against. Most of them are against the idea that there are elites in control of something as, as powerful as biotech. And when you're not that, and when you're um, radically open about everything, I think it really helps people feel comfortable. Um, and especially with GMOs, if you can hand somebody a kit and say, make your own GMO, it's really difficult to be terrified of it after the fact. Um, and like I've been to schools, I've taught at schools uh, where you go to a high school and put a class on where, you know, I bring three genes and some E. coli and say, pick your genes. We're going to add, you know, which one do you want to add? We can make them red. We can make them blue. We can make them glow in the dark. And, uh, you know, giving people that agency to say, hmm, I want this gene and we'll put it in there and I'll do the thing and have them create something with their own hands really um, changes it because it seems less of a distant corporate thing that, you know, scary companies are doing according to all the memes you've you know how it's generally perceived and it really humanizes it really brings it into your personal sphere of experience and i think that is really powerful in terms of getting people to interact with biotech in the way that the scientists do the reason scientists aren't terrified of like gfp e. coli is because it's nothing and when you've done it it suddenly seems like nothing too Ah, very good. I, I, I love it. So uh, let's talk again sometime going forward. So if people wanted to learn more about you, where do they find you on social media or follow you on YouTube or Patreon or where do they get more? Uh, so I've got a Patreon, uh, which, which does a lot of my projects. Some of my projects go on YouTube. Some of them don't because YouTube has very strict regulations. Uh, they removed all of my COVID stuff. Um, and uh, they 
so some of my stuff is on YouTube. Uh, you can just just search David Ishi. It'll all come up. I don't use any weird names. Um, and uh, you know, like I said, I've got a Patreon. Anybody who wants to join that, I would I would appreciate it. Um, and then also. Uh, you can find me on a couple of documentaries. Like if you want to, if you watch Netflix, uh, Unnatural Selection covers a lot of my work throughout sort of the, the 2017 period. Yeah, there you go. And it's been, uh, spell your last name for everybody too, just to get it right. Oh, sure. Yeah. So it's David and then Ishi. Ishi is I-S-H-E-E. Okay. So David Ishi, thank you very much for joining me today on the Talking Biotech Podcast. Uh, best wishes going forward. And you know, you're welcome to give, to join us anytime you have something really cool to talk about. So anytime. Awesome. Been great. Thank you. And for everyone listening, thank you for listening to another episode of the Talking Biotech Podcast. Uh, think about biohacking and how you may do some DIY science yourself. If you don't do it in a laboratory already or you want to try to help a kid understand how biotechnology works, think about maybe purchasing some of these kits for a local school or a kid who's looking for a science fair project. Because uh, when you get your hands into the nuts and bolts, this is a really captivating science. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.